1: va a llegar el gol del Arsenal of Phil. marca Mesut Ofil This is Askars
2: extra Hello and welcome to another Cast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning
1: to you too. How are you doing?
2: I'm okay. I'm, I'm feeling a bit disappointed, I have to say, because uh, I went into this Brighton game full of hope, full of optimism, mm. with a strong belief that we would win the game. Sure. And that was entirely down to you.
1: Yeah, Uh, hurting myself.
2: Yeah, saw your Twitter, saw you with a bit of a cast on your arm, and I thought, well, if that doesn't fucking augur well for this game, I don't know what does. And lo and behold, we lost. We lost, and it's it's prompted a question from one of our listeners, uh, Vanig Bostanian, who says, is it safe to assume that Arsenal are so shit that not even an injury to James can help them get three points? The other side of that, of course, is perhaps the injury wasn't quite serious enough.
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. Maybe it wasn't severe enough. Um, shall I tell you very quickly what happened?
2: Yes, please. And stop crinkling so, that bit of paper, whatever it is.
1: Oh, that's my um, sort of a cast type thing. Oh, is I'm it? Wearing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. then I
2: apologise. I thought you were playing with a sweet wrapper or something. So, no, no that's no, fine. No. Just,
1: uh, just stop moving completely. Uh, I'll just stay very, very still. <laughs> So, basically, I had to go on Friday to hospital anyway, <laughs> because that's what my life is like. I was just having a routine scan on some important parts of my body. <laughs> and uh, that narrative sit down. So, I won't go into it. Some internal organs, they were just checking that they were the right shape, or something like that. Right. And I left the hospital, and um, my wife was in the car, and she was like, oh let's go and get a takeaway coffee from the coffee shop near here. I was like, brilliant, all right, we'll go and do that. So we went and we parked in, like, a little parking space next to a van. We went and got the coffee, we got back to the car. I couldn't get in the front seat of my car to drive it because the van was too close to me. How did I mean? you
2: get out in the first place?
1: Uh, maybe the van wasn't there when I first parked,
2: okay, actually. Okay, right.
1: So, then... I stood at the side and thought, rather than open my door and, you know, cause any problems with this van, I could see the driver in the van, dr- uh, and I was like, I'll just let him drive out. He was facing out of the of the car park space, whereas my car was facing in. Yeah. He had parked more adeptly. So he drove out the space, I went round, I opened my car door, and then, for reasons I don't understand to this day, he started reversing back into the space. And I was waving and shouting, being like, "You're about to take off my car door, because mm. he was reversing directly into it, And what I should have done, obviously, is just got out of the way and let him let the car door <laughs> perish. But what I did was for some reason, I sort of put my arm between the van and the car door, oh. as- and he reversed continually to reverse despite me banging on the back of the van it, crushing my right arm between the van and the door which, which is weird because my great-aunt lost her arm in an accident when it getting crushed out of the side of a car but really? my arm is intact
2: you're not just making that bit up no
1: no, that's hundred percent true. It's wow. actually her situation was worse. She had her arm. She was on a bus and she had her arm out of the window, and the bus ah! swerved, and ah! it got crushed between a bus and a lamppost.
2: Okay, so this van driver had no sensory perception whatsoever. You know, he couldn't see.
1: He obviously couldn't he didn't hear. Look in his mirror, he couldn't yeah. feel
2: anything when you were banging on the van.
1: Yeah. So, so he. So my arm. I mean, a questionable decision may be to sort of have put myself in harm's way, but I really thought he'd stop that van, and he really didn't. Mm. And my arm went very big and very sort of wonky looking, and I was like... As a man who's broken bones before, I was like, here we go.
2: Here we go again.
1: And the pain was very intense, you know. I mean, the the screams of Burned Leno were nothing compared to me on the floor in a car park in Boreham Wood. Wow. And... I went to, back to the same hospital um and it transpired after a few scans they were like yeah yeah it's definitely broken it's definitely broken it isn't broken
2: what the fuck sort of hospital is this what kind <laughs> of hospital is it like you would expect some sort of you know um uh, what's the word an assured decision oh yeah it's broken we've scanned it it's broken and it's turned out to be not broken what's wrong with them or their machines
1: cuz i said to the nurse i was like is it broken she was like I- have you, uh, how's your hand feel? And I was like, I've got pins and needles. I can't feel anything in my hand. She was like, that'll be broken then. So, in fairness to them, they were going on evidence. When they got the scan, they were like, oh, your bones are fine. It's just all your flesh. And they were like, that's fine. You can go home. But I mean, I'm still annoyed. I, I still, basically, my arm really hurts, but it didn't break. And therefore, that's why we lost. And well, it is my fault.
2: Right. Okay. Okay, so not only did you get injured, you didn't get injured enough for us to win the game, and you're still in a great deal of pain and discomfort. And at the moment... We
1: need to find this van driver. It's like Final Destination. Well, what happened to
2: him? Did he drive off or- He drove
1: straight off, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: He didn't get a um, number plate a or number anything plate. like that? We
1: did get a number plate. Right, Don't okay. Don't worry about that. All you need but- now is
2: a private investigator and a personal <laughs> injury lawyer, and you'll
1: be fine. No, the thing is, what we need is we need him to get back we need to get that man back and this time he needs to properly kill me with the
2: van another option might be for us to get that van driver and for him to plough into the Southampton team bus Taking them sure. off the motorway on their way. Oh, they'd be going individually. Anyway, I don't know. Run over a few of their players, spare you some of the pain, and maybe we might have a chance on Thursday. But look, um, a series of, of unfortunate events Um Yeah, but don't worry, because the
1: next day, I got to cheer myself up by going to watch the mighty Arsenal in action at Brighton.
2: Is there... Um, is there an edict from on high that anybody who is involved in covering a game, whether as a journalist or a commentator or a pundit, must speak about how privileged they are to be there.
1: We do get a sheet that tells us, there are certain things we have to do, and that's one of the things on the list, yeah. You also have to uh, tweet a picture of you in a mask at the ground. That's also obligatory. Wow. Um, And then you ha- you also have to um I'm joking by the way No, this is true. Oh, okay. So <laughs> it just to uh, surprise me. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I recognize that there are patterns of behavior yeah. across journalists. Okay. But I mean to be honest, you you feel you do feel fortunate, but then you're also like this is very weird. I mm. mean Brighton Brighton it was a re- it was the first game I've been to and it was a really impressive like uh, set up you know like mm-hmm. you got there in your car they took your temperature while you are in your car they um, you know it was all very, it was very like sort of convey about you know park here do this walk here it was, it was super controlled super efficient right. but also by that token I mean a completely alien experience yeah you know?
2: Well, look, what wasn't an alien experience was Arsenal losing a game away from home. Um, That was a habit we'd sort of gotten out of uh, under Mikel Arteta, but it came back with a vengeance on Saturday um, against Brighton. You have three o'clock kickoff. There's our little bit of trivia. Who's the first team ever to lose a game uh, when a game has been broadcast at 3 p.m. live in the UK on television? Who could it be? Who could it be? It could, only be us. Um, it could only be us. it could only be us. So look, let's go into it and let's talk a little bit about this game and about about what sort of a team Mikel Arteta picked. I mean, when you looked at it, did you have any particular issues? Were there things that, that stood out to you as surprising? Certainly the inclusion of Bakayo Saka in midfield was a very interesting one for me. Um, and remains an interesting one because I think we have this this notion that with Saka, you know, uh, we can see a place for him in the team on the left-hand side of the attack, and a very intra, a very good place for him there. And then we think about well, what happens with Aubameyang? What happens with Martinelli? Uh, and we'll come to to some of those decisions. But but this is another little string to his bow that we weren't necessarily sure that he had, and I thought it worked quite well in the opening part of the game.
1: Yeah, I think they experimented with it in those friendly games. He played a bit of a few minutes in that position there. I mean, I actually thought that. Arsenal's lineup was pretty interesting and started pretty well. I mean, I know there won't be much appetite to hear that given the result, but I thought the first ten minutes, a bit like the Man City game, mm. was sort of the most encouraging bit. And I actually thought there were sort of some quite interesting tactical developments. You know, Arteta really did change up what he was doing by, you know, he, he always plays with, like, a, a kind of number 10, be that an Urzel or, or a Willock the other night, but he didn't. He had sort of two central midfielders in Sabios in and Saka either side of Gunduzi, and Saka was doing this sort of interesting inside-out thing where he was sort of central midfielder, but he could go wide, meaning Aubameyang could cut in, and Bellerin was doing that sort of uh, Man City-esque uh, right-back thing.
2: very, very... Uh, tucked in, didn't he? Mm.
1: Yeah, it was kind of in possession. It was kind of a three-three-four almost. Mm. So Kolasinac was super deep, almost a third centre-back. Bellerin was kind of a, a third central midfielder. And then Saka could kind of overlap wide. And, you know, it was... Interesting, because that is sort of a lot of the tricks Man City play. You know, De Bruyne plays that kind of role that Saka was doing, albeit on the opposite side. Carl Walker plays that right-back role. I was watching it and thinking, oh, this is the next evolution here. This is where we're going with this. And obviously, it didn't sustain, Mm. and the performance wasn't good at all, really, after the first... 15 minutes
2: yeah look i mean we hit the bar and we can talk about fine margins and, and everything else and if Saka's yeah. shot goes in maybe 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 it changes uh, the story of the game you know you go a goal up and and maybe you're filled with confidence to me it sometimes feels like the longer we go without scoring the more worried we become more the more inhibited we become in terms of our own performance and there were some tight um, situations, you think about the the great Saka pass through to Aubameyang uh, where he was just, you know, his toe was offside, basically. And there, there were moments where where it looked like it was happening, but you know, there just wasn't any kind of consistency or fluidity to the way that we played. Um, Brighton kind of figured us out. That guy in the midfield was allowed foul, foul, uh, with gay abandon, if you like, uh, Basuma was that his name? Someone, yeah. someone told me on on Twitter that Martin Keown picked him as his man of the match.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: And I thought that's the most perfect thing I've ever heard of because <laughs> Keown would have looked at that performance from Basuma and and just marvelled at the ability uh, he had to make fouls and not get booked. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, genuinely, like, imagine how much Keon would have loved a game in which he could, he could go and just career around the pitch and foul people and disrupt play and break up play. And I'm not being critical of the player, by the way. I'm absolutely not being critical of him for doing that. And, you know, I would pay good money for an Arsenal player to be able to do that. And that might be a discussion we have a little bit later on in the podcast. You know, it's down to the refereeing and the officiating and everything else. But... You know, it 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 was um, yeah, it was quite a marvel to see a player just just be able to do that without even a word from the referee. There wasn't even a a ticking off from Martin Atkinson.
1: Yeah, really interesting. It did feel a bit like home advantage, even though there were no fans to kind of sway the referee's Mm. opinion. It was incredible what he got away with. I think from Brighton's point of view. You know, maybe he was man of the match. He was certainly disruptive, um, mm. and it was, yeah, kind of flabbergasting that he didn't, you know, pick up a booking much, much earlier. Mm. Um, nevertheless, yeah, after that first 15 minutes, I mean, Arsenal, you make a good point about us not scoring, and I do think that, you know, it's not an original or particularly interesting observation to say that Arsenal have problems defensively and yeah. can be sloppy and vulnerable at set pieces, but I do think that it's going forward and it's the lack of clear chances we create yeah. that's maybe more concerning.
2: Well, I think the other thing to to note as well and I've noticed this more than once and you know I could be completely wrong but it feels like this is a true thing to me that that after uh, a team realizes that that Arsenal are a bit toothless they start to to apply a bit more pressure on us they start to play higher up the pitch they start to press us higher up the pitch and and we're not you know particularly well able to cope with that i think when we can when we can compress the opposition when we can play more of the game in their half there is a bit more about us from an attacking point of view but i think that the big issue for me is midfield we just do not have a midfield worth talking about um you know that they're the, the, the the, the the qualities of the players that we have in there do not allow us to control football games. And the age-old debate about Aubameyang on the left, I think, is in some way predicated from the fact that we have a central midfield that just doesn't create, doesn't score, uh, doesn't protect our defense well enough. You know, in order to have any kind of a platform in a game, you need players in there who can who can do multiple things you know and we don't have players who who can do that and I you know I, I'm not being critical of Saka for example you know he he is a player who's got a lot uh, to his game whether it's wide whether he's playing in that central area um but I you know I I worry about Ginduzi, um even though I thought you know he was pretty tidy in general on the ball I think Sabios also was pretty tidy on the ball but like there's no um there's no pace in that midfield, there's no athleticism in that midfield, there's no creativity in that midfield, there's no aggression in that midfield, there's no passing range really in that midfield. I know um, you know, they're tidy enough on the ball, but they're not. They're not penetrative, they're not creative. Um and I think something I pointed out in the in the blog the other day was that all of our central midfielders this season, I don't include Mesut Ozil in this because I, I think of him more as an attacking midfield player. Have one Premier League goal between them the entire season, so this this requires us to have goal threats from other areas of the pitch and requires us to think, okay, well we could we could play Aubameyang centrally, but we're going to have to play a centre forward as well because we need a centre forward. Uh, so we we pick Lacazette because Nketiah played the other night. Lacazette, a player hasn't scored a, an away goal for for well over a year. I think it was February 2019 mm. since he last scored away from home. So there's a lot of problems. In this team, um, but I I really feel like the heart of our engine room, if you like, is is a major major part of what's wrong.
1: Yeah, definitely. And not that he's the perfect solution by any means, but Granit Xhaka was a very important player for Mikel Arteta prior to the interruption mm. of football. And I think losing him as early as we did in the return is is clearly a problem.
2: Isn't that think, Isn't that sort of also illustrative of the wider issues that we have in that area of the pitch. And you know, I don't really dislike Granite Xhaka. I think he's a player who's got some limitations, but I can also see the qualities that he has. But if he, when you look at the lineup of central midfielders that we have, is I think um, by far the most important uh, to provide any kind of structure to our midfield, that tells me that there's a problem beyond, you know, simply the personnel, if you like.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think Arteta has been unfortunate in that he doesn't have Shaka, he doesn't have Torreira. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I'm not sure that those are perfect uh, players to fix this issue. I mean, if you look at Manchester United uh, and they are looking now at dovetailing Fernandez with Pogba, I mean, those two players are on a level that none of the Arsenal midfielders are close to, I would suggest. Um, and you can say Ganduzi and Sabio's look tidy, but it's kind of the problem as much as anything with them is that they always, they always do look relatively tidy, but don't always feel like they're affecting games dramatically.
2: Yeah, there's an element of you know, good stats, good looking stats, um, mm-hmm. and you wonder. I mean, what was Ganduzi in terms of his passing? Uh let me get it up here. He was 92.9%, you know, 39 out of 42 passes. Um and let's see here with Sabiós. Why isn't my thing doing fucking iPad? Uh Sabiós, you know, 32 out of 39, so 82%. So not that safe, but probably tried a couple more risky passes than than Gendouzi did. And look, I feel for Arteta. He doesn't have a great deal to work with in there. He may have even less to work with um on on thursday night because gendouzi could be facing a, a three game ban
1: yeah it's a, it's a massive problem and it's a huge area of concern i mean you know arsenal it's also an area with big big questions because you know what do arsenal decide on sabios in the next 24 hours mm. uh you know it, it, it's uh I mean, it feels remiss to not say, well, look, obviously there are problems at centre-half, obviously there are problems in attack, but I do think that the hub of your team is your central midfield, isn't it? Mm. When we think about the great Arsenal teams that we've been uh, fortunate enough to watch in the past, so often it was the central midfield that was kind of the heartbeat of those
2: teams. Yeah, and look, you know, this is is an area of the pitch which has been uh, in need of... um, We've needed to do something there for a long time. And it's not as if we haven't tried. You know, Xhaka came in for big money. Uh, Lucas Torreira came in. Genduzzi was, you know, I think a, a, a relatively cheap um, option uh, who proved himself to be uh, mm. more useful than people thought or, or certainly they might have expected in the early part of his Arsenal career. Um, but, you know, unless we sort out this area of the pitch uh, with the kind of players who can thrive in the Premier League, uh, we're going to continue to struggle. But look, maybe we can have that debate another day. Let's talk about Bernd Leno and let's talk about the challenge by Neil Maupay. Um, I assume that if the screams were as visible as they were um, on TV, they were even more so within the ground itself.
1: Yes, that is a kind of unsettling element of these uh, fanless games is that when a player is in that much discomfort it's very very clear and it was very alarming I mean genuinely from some of the reactions of some of the players um, given that we didn't have the benefit of replay straight away I thought it might be one of those situations where his leg was back to front I mean that people had their, mm. their hands kind of thing and I think that was because it was they were clearly upset and shocked by um, how much pain he was in although maybe we'll return to this I'm not sure if that level of upset W- was made particularly evident. Yeah. If you see what I mean.
2: No, I do see what you mean. And that, that is certainly something we will come back to. And I think we might do that in part two because we've got a couple of questions about that. But but the challenge itself, um, you know, it's one of those... And we've had this discussion before, haven't we? We've, we've talked about how snide it is how dangerous it can be most of the time 99.9% of the time burn leno lands absolutely fine and he gets a free kick because it's clear what has happened there um what what did happen as far as i can tell, and as far as I can see, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that Mopé knew that Leno was going to catch the ball. He was near the edge of his box. He wanted to give him a little nudge so he would land outside the box, therefore getting a free kick for his team. And the very first thing that Mopé does when Leno lands outside the box is point and say, look, look, he's outside the box, free kick, we should get a free kick. And then the screams start and he sort of melts away into the background. Um the, the whole point of whether or not he meant to hurt him or whether he meant for an injury to happen, to me, is completely... Um, what's the word? It's irrelevant. That's the word I was mm. looking for. It's absolutely irrelevant. When you carry out a foul like that on a player, you run a risk of them suffering a serious injury. We saw it with Arnautovic when he did exactly the same to Matthew debuchi, gave him a shoulder in the back while both his feet were off the air. Debuchi crashes into the advertising hoardings, uh, dislocates his shoulder, uh, I think, just weeks after coming back from a, a knee or an ankle ligament injury. And that was basically debuchi's Arsenal career done and dusted. It was over mm-hmm. for him. He never recovered from that. Uh there was one I think with Alexis get, getting pushed down a a, a camera uh, hole or whatever the fuck you call them, uh, at, at Caro Road against Norwich. I think Koscielny suffered a similar kind of uh, incident last season as well. Again, with his back to goal or, or shepherding a ball out and, and off balance, he gets a shove and people go, oh, "It's nothing, it's a contact sport, blah, 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 blah. But this is what can happen. This is what can happen when when you do that. The injury to Leno is 100% caused by that tiny little nudge you might call it irrelevant or insignificant or just a coming together, whatever you want to do. But if he doesn't do that, Leno lands fine and Arsenal will have a goalkeeper who's not going to be out of action for for nine months. And, and I'm tired of that kind of foul being excused. And I'm also tired of there not being sufficient rules in place for football to deal with those kind of incidents. Because in rugby... There's a very clear rule, and rugby is a game where men smash into each other fucking head first all day long. They fucking mm. smash each other. But there is a rule that if you, if you uh, tackle a player while he's in the air, while his feet are off the ground, it is recognized as being extremely dangerous. And if there is no intent to get the ball with that tackle, then you get sent off. You get a red card in rugby for that. Why is there no... Um, similar rule in football. Why is it just one of those things that's glossed over? It's like that's ah, just a bit unfortunate.
1: Well, I think if he had rugby tackled him in midday, he would have been sent off. Let's be clear about that.
2: Sure, but it's levels. It's the same. You know, you can't do a rugby tackle unless you're Matteo Ganduzi, um, which he did sure, earlier we'll in the season. But you know, it. and he got booked for it and everything else. But it's about the it's about the the the, the players' feet or the player being in the air and being off balance and the the foul designed to throw that player further off balance. Like I said, most of the time he'll be fine. He'll just stumble and fall and, 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 uh, and everything else. But, you know, it can cause serious injury, as it appears to have done with Leno.
1: I guess. I, I think I'm slightly less exercised about it, personally. I, I sort of feel like a really good tackle can cause a serious injury do you know what I mean it's like anything is prone to an accident and I think that the Dabushi and uh, Alexis situations for me are much more grave because they are when a player is off the pitch pushing them you know into another area or off you know off the side of the pitch I think that that is really awful with the Mope thing I was sort of thinking I was genuinely thinking like if it's a home if it's a home striker if it's Lacazette or Berming and they're sort of closing down a goalkeeper and although in slow motion replay yeah clearly he takes the, the ball a long way before don't, don't you actually sort of want your striker to not pull out of stuff?
2: If he's going for the ball absolutely but he wasn't yeah. going for the ball he knew Leno had the ball in his hands it was not a challenge in which he went for the ball.
1: So it's definitely cynical. I mean, I, I think you're right. He's either playing for a handball or he's playing for Leno to drop it, yeah. in the collision, and somehow he gets away with it and it's not given as a free kick. Yes, yeah. I, I, I think the officiating was really bad on the day. I agree, but in this instance, it's the law that's the ass.
2: Well, that's my point. That's yeah. my point. And we have all we have VAR, we have technology. Um, in which that that incident could have been reviewed very very quickly um, to show that Mope had a no intention of playing the ball and B he nudged the goalkeeper a while his feet. Uh, we're in the air, therefore it's it's reckless. It's causing uh, uh, what's it? It's endangering an opponent. Um, you know, it's not like he's pushing him into the stands or onto some spikes or railings, but you know he's off balance, and the consequence of that is him landing in a way which hyper his knee. And uh, I think the the fear is that that Leno has suffered a, an ACL rupture. We we have to wait for some confirmation. It normally takes a couple of days. Fingers crossed. That's not the case, but you know the, the the consequences of that one action for Arsenal are: a) we lose Leno, who's our best player, one of our best players; b) um, we've got to use uh, uh, our backup goalkeeper now for the rest of this season, and hopefully Emi Martinez can step up. c) It might mean we have to spend money on a goalkeeper in the summer if the injury is long term. You know, it, it throws another sort of. Uh, uh, complication into our transfer business whatever that is you know and what what happens to mope nothing
1: well no nothing and that is the that is the, that is the law of not being correct i would say you know mm. if something is if something is genuinely not an attempt to win the ball i think that's clearly worse than i mean lacazette went in on the goalkeeper didn't he in the second half um And I think the difference, I haven't seen a replay of that one, but the difference, bowler counts, was that it seemed that the ball was there to be won. Yeah, he went sliding Um, in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, still dangerous. And he was booked, right? Mm. Which I think is correct. But yeah, I mean, look, I feel desperately sorry for Leno. I feel desperately sorry for him because he's had a nightmare of a season in terms of what he's had to face but he's come out of it with enormous credit mm. I, ju- I do think there is a case to be made that he has been our best player this season I think it's between him and Aubameyang clearly but he has been brilliant on so many occasions mm. um, and we're going to miss him enormously I just and I don't think, mean that necessarily as a slight on Emi Martinez but I just think Leno's been outstanding and if it is if it is an ACL injury and no other ligaments are damaged, I think he's actually done fairly well. Because from mm. what a couple of people said, like that could be a multiple ligament injury to properly hyperextend your knee in that way. Uh, even so, it's clearly awful. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, this is. The, I, we'll get on to the manager, but I do, I have to say, whatever you make of his decisions and his management, I think he has been very unlucky in his first two games
2: not just in the first two games and this isn't to make excuses for him but I think he's been really really unlucky since he arrived because he's lost players to injury you know you think about Callum Chambers getting an injury uh, a crucial ligament injury as well Um, Lucas Torreira I'm pretty sure there's been another one, but then, you know, you come back, you lose Granit Xhaka inside a couple of minutes, you lose Pablo Marie inside 20 minutes, you lose your goalkeeper. Um, Yeah, look, I think he he really has been unlucky. Arsenal have been unlucky. The only luck we've had is bad luck. Um, So, I don't know what to say. Fingers crossed for Leno, but it's, you know, I I just find it it really... No, it doesn't look good, but I find it really annoying. really, Really, really annoying. Um, that we lose a player in those circumstances because it is so, so unnecessary. The reaction of the Arsenal players and 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 everything else we'll come to in part two. So let's go on to... Let's Just go to on
1: say to, briefly on yeah. that, I, loved Le- I did love Leno's reaction.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, fuck, Leno... Like, take your fucking cue from Leno, guys. Take yeah. your cue from him. Because he knew what happened and he was furious about it and the Arsenal players... Didn't really show any of that until after the game. Again, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about let's talk about the goals, and then we can talk about the manager and the substitutions and the changes and, and those kind of things. So, Nicolas Pepe had a quiet day overall, um, but he picked up a pass. I think it was from Saka. Um, was he just inside the box or just outside the box? And, you know, what a finish. What an, uh, what an incredible finish um, from Nicolas Pepe. I mean, that's what, that's what you want to see more of from him. And I realise there are other aspects to why we don't quite uh, get as much from him um, as we might do. But, but that was a, a, a real piece of individual quality.
1: Yeah, it was. It, it reminded me, obviously, of his goal against West Ham. Uh, Just a brilliant strike. I mean, the way it dips in under the far corner. I mean, he had a really weird game in some ways because I I know people say Bellerin doesn't support him enough and doesn't run outside him, but I don't think there's any way you could watch this game and not think that that's what Bellerin was under instruction to do. I mean, he was really tucked in narrow. Mm. And I think, I think that was quite deliberate. I think that the, the plan, the idea was to isolate Pepe one versus one against six foot six Dan Byrne and run him, which worked to an extent. I mean, Byrne was quite clever. He committed quite a few fouls on Pepe to sort of stop him getting away. I mean, Brighton were, you know, very physical and they were happy to commit fouls when they needed to in order mm. to slow Arsenal down. But Pepe, you know, he, he didn't get into the game a great deal, but that was an example of what he can, can do.
2: OK, I mean, you, I take your point about Ballerin and what he was instructed to do, but do you feel like with that kind of instruction, it still leaves Pepe quite isolated uh, and maybe not getting on the ball as much as uh, as we would want him to?
1: Yeah, I mean it does. Uh, what what I noticed was it meant that whoever was playing left wing for Brighton, and I'm not sure it was. I think it might have been Aaron Moy in the first half. It was meant that Moy when Bellerin- and they brought on um, Marsh, right. March, rather, because Moy had been booked. That's right. So yeah. when Bellerin went in field, Moy went with him, and all, and all that meant was that it meant every time Pepe was available, was one versus one with Burn. And I actually would argue that the bigger problem was that Arsenal didn't get the ball to him. Because I think I would back Pepe against Byrne eight times out of ten. And I think that the team was set up to facilitate that, but he didn't get on the ball. I know that, you know, fine, take Bellerin down there with him, but he's going to take Moy with him as well. Mm. Um,
2: it is weird, though, because you look at... Um, I'm just looking at the the passes. Like, from the time he scored the goal... Until the time he was taken off he received three passes. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is it's crazy. He's playing against a left back who's who's on a yellow card.
1: I think that the right-hand side was dysfunctional. I think we didn't get him on the ball. I think Bellerin wasn't particularly great in that role. It's not a role that he's played loads of. And I also think that Ceballos was our kind of right-sided central midfield player. And I just think that's not his side. I mean, one of the the issues with this Arsenal midfield, I thought, on Saturday, was that in Gendouzi, Saka and Ceballos, and I think Tim Stillman tweeted about this, you've got three players who want to be in the inside left channel, really. Like, that's where... Mm. They're all more comfortable, and the Arsenal didn't look to use the right hand side enough. I also think Lacazette was pulling into that channel, but didn't have the best game. I mean, as he tends to not away from home. Mm. So yeah, it is it is a it is an odd one, and I do I do accept that it looks like Pepe is left with an enormous amount to do. The funny thing is, on this in this particular match, in this particular one v one. I would have absolutely backed him to be able to do it. And when he got the ball, he was dangerous. I just don't think we spread the play and got – spent Dutch there – spread the play. That's Steve McLaren. I I don't think we did it well enough. And I don't think we found him in space enough.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of that, and we'll come to it now in a moment, is, you know, the substitutions. I think uh, there was – Ceballos was absolutely knackered. Um, I mean, he's not the quickest anyway. But there was, you know, there were times you're looking at him and you're going, "Are you wearing fucking lead boots, man?" You know, he just does not move quickly. And look, he played um, basically the whole game against Manchester City and and everything else. And I, you know, I realized that perhaps the options we have are imperfect. But you know, after three months without football, um, you've got to assess properly the physical capabilities of the players. And maybe if somebody isn't quite technically as secure as Ceballos, but can give you more physically, it offsets that, particularly when you're playing against a team who are also going to be suffering, you know, physically. So that that might have been something Arteta could have done a bit earlier. Their first goal, uh, 2v1 versus a corner, I've watched it again and again, and it's it's difficult to see exactly who should be with Ceballos out there, but I think it's Pepe. Uh, and, and he drifts off centrally, but, you know, to to end up with just 2v1 on a corner like that is absolutely ridiculous um
1: especially uh, given that it was quite clear i think from early on that set pieces probably were the biggest threat to us on mm. the day um yeah i mean
2: and the point just to sort of cut across you sorry is is that you know when it comes to set pieces it's not just the ball being delivered in the box that you have to be aware of you know it's easy to look mm. at Brighton and say, look, look at all these big guys that they can put in our box and they have a line of four and they're all standing there. But, you know, a set piece isn't just about the ball coming into your box. It's how you're set up from each one to make sure something like that doesn't develop.
1: Yeah, it's uh, basics, isn't it? Yeah. It's real basics. And I think that played into Arteta's frustration at full time, you know, speaking about competing and, and being switched on, essentially. Arsenal weren't switched on enough mm. and they were punished. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a scrappy goal once it goes into the box, but you're absolutely right. It's the ease with which it goes into the box that's our undoing.
2: Mm, the winner?
1: Um, yeah, the winner, I need to have a look at it again, actually. I'm just loading it up now. I sort of, I think people will forgive me. I haven't wanted to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brighton brought on a player, McAllister, who is a very, very tidy, talented player, and he was involved. I mean, my first reaction when I saw it was... And maybe this is wrong, but I saw it and thought, that's a really good goal.
2: It was smart because I think if you look at it again, what's really clever, um, and I'm not here to sort of blow smoke up the arse of the opposition, is the movement of the two forwards. Is, yeah, it, Connolly? The, the step over. is it Connolly who plays the little dink or the little...
1: Yeah, it's McAllister into Connolly, and Mopey has dummied it and goes around the outside.
2: Yeah, but if you look at the movement of the two strikers... You know, it looks as if our central defenders should have them uh, covered. Um, but if you look yeah. at it, the one runs off the other one, so the two central defenders are... So he dummies it, and that guy flicks it around the corner, and then... I mean,
1: Mustafi does... I mean, listen, Mustafi's been... Uh- you know, the the in some ways the least of our problems in this these two games. Mm. But he does uh, get properly bamboozled there by that movement. He, he
2: does, he does. I've got nothing more to say about Mustafi that I've you know haven't already said. I just don't see the point. Um, you know. He's been fine, but, you know, there are moments where he gets exposed and and that was one of them. Um, I I do think as well that when Mikel Arteta talked about the manner of the goals, we didn't compete properly um, with either of the goals. I think he might think that his central midfielders uh, could have done more. I think Genduzzi's effort to close down the original pass is ha- half-hearted to say the least I mean he played nominally as our defensive midfielder and didn't make a single tackle you know I, and look I, I don't I'm not saying I blame him per se that's that's kind of not his game it's not mm-hmm. what he does he's not a tackler or an interceptor really um, but it's a problem you know uh, and look again he's he played did he play the whole game against Man City Ganduzi, or he played a significant chunk of it anyway?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, tackles aren't the be all end all. Gilberto Silva didn't always put in crunching challenges, did he? But it's about being smart. And when you look at the replay, I'm watching it again and again yeah. now. I don't know why it's sort of hypnotic. But when it is that guy, McAllister, who picks it up in midfield, Ganduzi's some way off him. I think Reese Nelson's the closest player. He could probably do more. Yeah. Ganduzi could certainly do more. Yep. Yeah. I think you know maybe that's Joe Willock inside I'm not sure who could do more there's just too much space to play that pass into such a a dangerous position on the edge of the 18 yard box and yeah sure from there Brighton do well it's the little Giroud flick and finish but Mm. like yeah Mustafi won't be happy with his contribution in that and I think you could see in Arteta post-match that he was really really unhappy with With the the nature of the concession of the lead,
2: of course, of course. I mean, look, uh, it would be
1: weird if he wasn't.
2: Yeah, of course, (laughs) conceding a goal at at that point of any game, or conceding a a goal that that loses you the game at that point is, you know, it's like a knife in the guts. Um, However, way you want to compartmentalize what's going on this season, and however sanguine you might be about where we are and what we're doing and everything that's gone on, it's still like a kick in the bollocks when you when you concede a goal like that.
1: Um. Should we still have been playing? By the way, I'm just looking at it now, and it's the it's 94 minutes and 28 seconds. I mean, uh, wasn't
2: there was there a stoppage or something like that? Was there a
1: stoppage? I can't remember.
2: I can't quite remember, but um
1: yeah, look, I'm yeah, not looking the, for do you know who
2: went down? It was the dude who fucking got fouled, or who uh, committed all the fouls. It was basuma who basically just sat down on the pitch. Uh, and wasted ah. a, a big chunk of the uh, the injury time which then didn't really get added on because uh, of the, the, the change that they made and also the celebration of the goal. I feel like we should have been able to take the corner, but, you know, that's not really our, that's not our big problem. Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, I remember now, Basume, yeah, he was he was cramping from a little bit earlier than that, sort of going down routinely. I mean, you never know in a situation like that, is it about the clock,
2: but... Yeah, yeah. look, I, I think uh, any person listening to this podcast, just go out in the street and spend 90 minutes kicking people. Yeah. And, and you'll have to sit down yourself. <laughs> you will feel that you will, feel, you will feel
1: that in the thighs you'll
2: start cramping up eventually <laughs> let's talk substitutions james and and it's been a yeah. discussion that we've had more than once about Mikel arteta since he took over with all the applicable caveats in you know that he's a, a rookie manager and a, you know learning his trade and all those things i think people can Can recognize that. But, you know, if you're having this discussion on a semi-consistent basis, it suggests that there is, you know, room for improvement. Um, And I think Arteta would probably recognize that himself. If he's looking to maintain high standards from his players, he'll want those high standards to be applied to himself or expect them to be applied to himself as well. Substitutions, I feel, in the time that he's been with us, have been a weakness, Mm. Is that, you know, I don't want to like uh, be overly critical, but I think it's fair to say that there are things, you know, he's good at and things which he's not quite as good at. And this is certainly one of them. I think that was summed up by by what happened with the first change, with uh, they were going to bring uh, Eddie and Ketty on and also Kieran Tierney on mm. and... The reason that didn't happen, my understanding is that it was it was on our side. It wasn't on the official side. So, you know, even something as basic as that, you know, is is an area that we can improve on.
1: Yeah, and look, that was a big problem because uh, it meant that the final change, if they wanted to bring Tierney on, that had to be it. You know, they had to make all their changes at the same time. They yeah. had a third opportunity. Uh, And it was a bizarre situation to watch unfold. I mean, Tierney was absolutely ready to come on um, and seemed bemused as to why he couldn't. It's obviously disappointing to know that the protocol wasn't followed. Do you know, is, is the protocol more complex at the moment than normal? like are there like do you have to tick form saying he hasn't got a temperature or something
2: I don't know I don't think yeah. so I think it's just the standard thing you right. you have to fill out some paperwork and give it to the fourth official and and what have you so
1: that's that's really uh frustrating but I think that is sort of almost I mean that, that's a kind of side note I think in terms of Arteta's decision making mm. I think you're right I think substitutions are an area of weakness and that's Inevitable, I guess, that there will be those areas of weakness in such an inexperienced manager. Um, but that's seemingly one. And it does matter. It's particularly at the moment when you're able to change quite so many players. You know, you want that to be f- with a positive effect.
2: Yeah, I mean, w- would you have done anything differently to what he did? I mean, he brought in keddy Arn for that which basically kind of like for like yeah. when he could possibly have, let's say, brought Lacazette off and put Martinelli on on the left-hand side um, mm. and moved Aubameyang into into the centre.
1: He could have done that. Uh, I mean, it's difficult to know. I mean, look, we've got a couple of questions about Martinelli and why mm. he's not been involved, um, which we'll come round to. I have the slight hunch that he sort of think, feels Aubameyang and Martinelli offer you very similar things and he was looking for some of those uh, more Lacazette-like qualities and that's where he sees en- Enketia as more analogous. I- I'm just looking... I mean, did he did that on 78 Minutes. Mm. I think... Again, he's unlucky because he had to he had to use a substitution for injury in the first half with Martinez. The, the three changes at eighty seven minutes. It's is it one all at that point? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they felt to me like they weren't even really substitutions to go and win the game, but more just like here is some more minutes for these players. Here is some fresh
2: thing. legs in the final few minutes. Yeah, and,
1: yeah. And maybe that's a mistake. Like maybe he should have been thinking. What, what can I do to improve this situation? What can I do to push on? Because Tierney, as a left winger, for example, is not a particularly progressive attacking change, is it?
2: Not really. I mean, I suppose the idea was to get him on the left wing and, and put some crosses in, um, yeah. you know, because he's good at that. He can deliver well into into the box. We've seen that this season. But, you know, again, could... Tierney not have come on for Kalasinac and and you find space for Martinelli or, or what have you, you look mm-hmm. at, you know, the 87-minute changes, how Ceballos lasted 87 minutes, I will never know. Uh, you know, and again, I accept that his, his his options are limited. He could have put on Joe Willock earlier or he could have put on Ainsley Maitland-Niles in midfield, about whom he had some very positive things to say before the game, but mm-hmm. um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of recognising where his team is struggling and addressing those issues in-game.
1: Yeah, it's game management, isn't mm. it? And it's being able to affect change. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't necessarily feel that he's particularly strong in that area right now. The only caveat I would offer to that is we're all saying Martinelli because Martinelli didn't play. But when you look at that bench, it's not massively strong. I would argue.
2: No, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't disagree yeah. with that at all. Like I said, the options are not particularly brilliant. And, I, I, mm. you know, I'm, I'm really wondering what he's going to do if Gendouzi is banned for Thursday. And uh, that would mean he'd be also banned for the Sheffield United FA Cup game and the, the home game against Norwich. Yeah. And we're without Granite Xhaka. We won't have Lucas Torreira, you know, the, the latest medical update from the, from the, the, the medical team on the official site was that he's looking to return to full training in two to three weeks. That's not a guy who's going to necessarily be ready to play in two to three weeks. You know, it feels like it's next season for Lucas Torreira, you know, based on how much time there is left in, in this particular campaign. Mm-hmm. Um. Maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, we'll wait and see. So, you know, what sort of a midfield is he going to fashion out of Ceballos, who's played two games and been, you know, looked very leggy and didn't look particularly good. Um, He's got Joe Willock. He's got Saka. He's got Ainsley Maitland-Niles. And then what? Well,
1: I think we're at the point where he's got to give Ainsley Maitland-Niles a game in there. Mm. I mean... I wouldn't read too much into what Arteta said about him. I mean, certainly there has been a kind of uh, rapprochement between them. Certainly they're they're on better terms and and Ainsley is considered for selection at this stage and Arteta thinks his attitude is improved. I don't think he's, you know, suddenly going to be the next Arsenal captain or anything like it. I think there's still a big chance that he might be on his way come the summer, but... Right now, given the lack of qualities we have in central midfield, given the injury problems we face, given the fact that we've tried other stuff and it hasn't worked, I think he has to be worth a go at this stage. And, you know, he had his shot at right-back. It's worth remembering, he didn't play badly at right-back, particularly under Mikel Arteta. He was actually fairly decent. The issue was simply that he didn't want to continue playing there. And I think if he does want to play higher up the pitch, if he does want to play midfield... I mean, we go to Southampton next. Am I right in thinking that that's actually where one of Maitland-Niles' best Arsenal performances did come as a central midfielder in that cup win uh, where Danny Welbeck scored a couple maybe and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain played central midfield right, was a right, big right. win in the FA Cup? Uh, maybe there'll be another chance for him there because, I mean, look, I, I just think if you go with Ceballos, you're putting yourself almost at a disadvantage in terms of legs and athleticism immediately. So mm. anyone you've got who can counteract that or bring some dynamism to the midfield, I think has to be considered.
2: Yeah. And of course, there's the um, the number 10 that we've
1: well, kind of yes, all forgotten of about. You mean, know, somebody... Sorry. Yeah. Talk about that subs bench. I mean, I, f- I genuinely forgot that he was there when I said that that was a very weak bench. And and I'll tell you part of the reason I forgot I mean, I know, you, I know reading anything into body language is a dangerous game, but his body language at Brighton was not the body language of someone who was particularly confident he was going to be involved at any point. Right,
2: yeah. <laughs> I did see him go out to warm up at one point. They showed him on the TV going out to warm up. Yeah. But, you know, look, needs must... You know, uh, we're in a difficult position and, uh, you know, can make all the cases about being away from home. And look, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that Mesut Ozil is anything like the kind of player that we would like him to be or anything like the kind of player he used to be, not by a long way. But, you know, what else is there when we're going to Southampton and we might have, you know, just kids to choose from? You've got to get some experience and also, you know, some ability on the ball. Um, so maybe, maybe this could be his, his um, Mustafi esque redemption for the last the, few years.
1: The games. cycles are getting quicker, aren't they? In terms of sort of he's out and then he's in. I mean, it used to be sort of over a period of months and now it's days. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, there we are. There we are. Anything else from this? Anything else you think we might have learned or that we need to discuss in this part of the show? um, Other than to just sort of say again, that it was a very, very disappointing result. And even if you're, you know, even if you're, um, like I said, fairly sanguine about what's going on, to go and lose to Brighton for the second time this season is, is very disappointing
1: yeah I mean the table is pretty sobering right now. I don't know if you sort of caught sight of it yesterday, but I believe we're in tenth now. We've got a goal difference of zero um We are very much a mid table team this season yeah and and it's not like an outlier that we're there. It's what all the underlying metrics and mm. things like that suggest we should be mm. uh it is sobering i mean i think I think. Man City, you know, we could all look at that and go, well that's Man City. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we could all sort of isolate that game to an extent, but Brighton had not won a match this calendar year uh, in the Premier League. Mm. They I mean, they are, yeah. go on.
2: No, I was just going to say we hadn't, you know, until this week we hadn't lost a game in the Premier League this year and Brighton hadn't won a game. I mean, is there a better team to face if you're Brighton than Arsenal?
1: Uh, possibly not, possibly not, but yeah, it, it it was quite sobering. And I sort of also think, looking at that table and looking at the amount of teams in between us and sort of those European places, and looking at the fact that like some of them won, like Wolves, and you know, I I I, I kind of I mean we, we might have a question about this, but I'm kind of very close to sort of writing it off the season. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Our chances of like achieving anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah me too. Me too. I'm like, there's the realistic part of my brain and the kind of gut feeling part of my brain is like, this is, this has been over for a while. Um, th- this is a season I really, really want to see the back of. I think, you know, we're, we're struggling for all kinds of reasons that we don't need to go into, that we've discussed many, many times. You know, a lot of what's happening is, is a consequence of what's come before Mikel Arteta. But, you know, Arteta has to obviously take some responsibility for, mm. for what we've done on the pitch against Brighton and everything else. And then there's the other kind of little sneaky part of my head that goes, well, you know, we could win the FA Cup and get back into Europe that way. And then it's like, shut up. You shut up, you stupid brain. But I can't I help thinking that either, you know. It's weird. But well,
1: also, experience has kind of taught us that because there were so many times under Arsene Wenger when it looked like that door was closed and then we would somehow sort of sneak in. Mm. Um but I do get the sense that this group of players is a slightly different matter and that this yeah. season is a slightly different matter.
2: Mm, there, are, there are issues that we're going to go into in part two because we do have some good questions. So look, let's take a break and we will come back with your questions and more in part two right after this.
0: if you could shop the shelves of your local liquor stores at the same time well spoiler alert you can with drizzly the number one alcohol delivery app compare prices on a huge selection of beer wine and spirits like Tangere, crown royal and ciroc then get them delivered to your door in under 60 minutes right now drizzly is giving new customers five dollars off their first order just enter promo code save five at checkout Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy
2: Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at ArseBlog on the ArseBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArseBlog and also on the ArseBlog Discord server, which you get access to if you are an ArseBlog member on Patreon. Uh, I, d- I just want to start with this one um, from Facebook from Christopher Howard Moon Smith. There is a name. Anyway, he said, why am I seeing so much praise for Ceballos' reverse nutmeg on Lacazette? If Lacazette hadn't lifted up at precisely the right moment, it would have been the shittest pass of the entire game straight into his teammate's arse, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah I don't know good question why yeah. are we really any praise of Spurs? yeah very good question anyway look
2: let's start with a more uh, interesting question and certainly one that a lot of people have asked again from oh, the God. discord this is from Marin17 who says there's clearly something wrong with the mentality of these players uh, the game was 1-1 and the players looked absolutely content with it nobody seemed really upset about Leno's injury apart from Leno ganduzi's uh, antics after the game don't count. What do you think we need to do to instill some fighting spirit into these players? And also from the Discord, we have one from oh gosh, it didn't copy the name across. Let me see if I can get it here. Um, bum bum bum. I should have this. I can't find it anywhere. Oh, it's from Ron Snooder, who says, other than a complete 100% overhaul of the players, how do you fix or at least address the issue of nobody going to Leno's aid? How do you instill that camaraderie or that, that kind of fight? Is it trained or is it bought? Does it speak to a lack of togetherness in the squad?
1: How do we get some fight? We buy Basuma from Brighton <laughs> and just get him to run around, kick him around. I I don't know. It, it did trouble me slightly, I have to say. I really, really, as I said in part one, enjoyed Leno's reaction and I kind of, I liked that he was sort of, you know, angry and that that anger was sort mm. of channelled in a confrontational way. Um, and it, it does bother me that there wasn't... Anyone kind of stepping in there? I think actually that is another instance where you really felt the absence of someone like Granite Shaka. And even though you know he has his critics, I suspect that's a conversation he would have been involved in. You know, the, the captain out there is Aubameyang. It, it's just not him, is it? To no. kind of step up in that way and be confrontational—that is not his character. It's not his persona. It's not the type of leader he is. You do need that in a team. And it bothers me. I mean, if you think, you know, we spoke about Martin Keown earlier, imagine his response, you know?
2: Absolutely. I mean, look, it's it's kind of easy to say, well, back in my day, back in of the course. old days, if that had happened, you know, but really, if that had happened, you know, not too long ago, um, Mopé would have got smashed. Next time mm. he went for the ball, he would have got clattered and i don't mean like you know he would have got a dig in the head or or whatever but he would certainly have been left under no illusions as to what every single arsenal player on that pitch thought of him and was willing to do to him mm. like you know yeah it's 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 it is a difficult one i know you've got to be professional you can't just sort of go clattering into a guy and get a red card because you're you're upset but i you know I feel I was so disappointed because I thought like a at the time there wasn't enough reaction um, there wasn't enough reaction when Leno went off and 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 it, like Leno was pointing the finger but he was also showing his teammates you know this was a serious incident you've got to yeah. you've got to come back and 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 do that's something the guy
1: him. that's the guy what done
2: he was literally pointing at the guy who needed to get done right. Um, and I thought, okay, well, look, they'll go in at halftime, and they'll obviously get some updates, some information on Leno and the injury that he's had. And they're going to come out, and they're going to be aggressive. They're going to be intense. They're going to want to, you know, uh, do it for Leno. Uh, in inverted commas, you know, uh, things like that should galvanize a team. They should cause, yeah, you know, cause them to come together to raise the uh, mm. the intensity levels. And it didn't happen. And that's that's I don't know whether it's to do with what they're being told at halftime in the dressing room. I don't know if it's like Arteta trying to keep cool and look, just don't lose your reason. I don't know if it's just the personalities of these players. I think it was quite informative that it took until after the final whistle for anybody to have a go at Mopé. And that was probably more to do with the fact that he scored the winning goal and maybe he was having a bit of mouth, you know, scoring the winner. I'm and, sure he
1: was. I'm sure he uh, yeah, was.
2: He yeah. looks like the kind, in fairness.
1: He, he, he looks it. I I don't know him, but but uh, someone I know who watches Brentford a lot, where he was previously, after the Leno thing, did text me and say, as someone who's watched Mopé a lot, he is absolutely that kind of player. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, he's one of those sort of Paul Dickov, nice and n- sort of nuisance nightmare mm. bastard strikers. And that is his game, and part of his game is the sledging and the bullshit you know Mm. he's like uh, uh, and of course Guendouzi that's part of his character as well so it's inevitable that there would be some kind of confrontation there eventually but I agree it came too late and I think I was going to tweet this at half time but I didn't but the half time team talk for Michael Arteta should have been the most simple one he's had to give so far because Arsenal absolutely had a cause and a reason to feel hard done by and a reason Mm. to be annoyed and a reason to want to go on and win this game for Leno and I actually think there's, um, there's something happening right now at Arsenal that's really causing Arteta problems. And I think it's that his experienced players, probably what he and Steve Round would call his sort of leadership group or captain group, are kind of dissipating and kind of disappearing. So, you know, Louise, for whatever we think of him, is uh, one of those figures in the dressing room that people look up to and he's not currently there right now and he might not be there much longer. Shaka, obviously, we're without him. Aubameyang, there's all this stuff about, you know, is he going to leave the club? Is he going to sign a new yeah, deal? Yeah, yeah. Meza Ozil, need I say any more? The, the list of sort of big big players in the dressing room, the ones that Arteta has and that he has lent on thus far, they currently aren't there for him and may not be there for him for much longer. Yeah, I also think... There's a secondary point, which is even then, some of these characters are not the right characters to be those figures in the dressing room, to be in those positions. So what we have is a really talented, young group of players. But it is so essential that they are partnered with or that they are led by the right experienced professionals. That's
2: something Arteta said during the week isn't it you know we have these young players and there's a danger if you put them in that you know if they don't have the right uh, players around them to help them develop and uh, to help them learn they're not going to make the right progression but then I look at like I, I think that's a fantastic point you look at the senior players that we have and there are very few of them I think that if you're a young player, you're going to look at and say, well, you know, he's going to lead me. And look, we we hear all the time about Luis being a great guy around the dressing room and and the training ground and all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, but really,
1: I worry, I worry. If I gave you a young centre-half and said, uh, find me a mentor for this young centre-half to make sure he turns into the best defender he possibly can, you wouldn't bring me David Luis?
2: No. Or Mustafi.
1: or Mustafi, or even Socrates. I mean, Socrates is another kind of leader, experienced figure in that dressing room who, A, is injured, and B, isn't really in the plans anyway. In a funny kind of way, it's almost reminiscent of the fucking five captains bullshit, where all these figureheads, mm. all these supposed leaders, when we needed them, basically disappeared. And I, I think that that is a huge problem at Arsenal. And he, if you were looking. You know, people talk about George Graham in the 80s and the talented young players that came through then and it's a point that often gets made but it was about having the right experienced approach to complement them. Mm. And I just don't think Arsenal have that. I think, you know, if you're Gendouzi, even in midfield, your role model is Shaka, and we know that that's not exactly perfect. Up front, I mean, Aubameyang is a brilliant player he's he's not necessarily someone you expect to lead and represent the club he's not even the guy who led and represented the club in the contract negotiations well, so yeah
2: speaking of which let me just go on with another question here because we've got a couple like this um Father Ted Arsenal, uh, who's at Father Ted R, says, do you think that taking a pay cut has demotivated some of these players, especially since other teams didn't do the same? And Pappy, who's at Ken May underscore pad on Twitter, says, the wage cut decision feels stranger and stranger to me when even the relegation-threatened teams haven't enforced one. Can this change the players' feeling regarding the club and our stature as a big club, if you could make the case at Arsenal, are still a big club, you know. So mm. do you think there's uh, potentially the wage cut situation, when you look at it now, look at how quickly it was pushed through, look at how contentious it was, look at everything that went on around that, and and, you know, we were... I suppose, heartened, maybe that's not the right word, but reassured that when Mikel Arteta got involved and sort of led by example to say he was going to take a pay cut himself and and all that kind of stuff that the people got on board, it spoke to a, a, uh, you know, good connection between the manager and within the squad and everything else. But, you know, is it uh, impossible that this has created uh, an issue for some of the players? Like well, particularly some of the ones who like don't really view their long-term future at Arsenal.
1: Yeah, I think it could have done. I mean, certainly, there was unhappiness about it at the time from some quarters of the squad, and there was discomfort about the way the negotiations were handled, mm. and I think certain players didn't appreciate the head coach becoming involved because they felt they conflated a salary question with a selection question. Um, And I think, you know, inevitably it's a risky thing for the club to have done because it can jeopardise those relationships. I mean, you know, I don't know for sure. It's impossible to say Mm. that's why Arsenal's performances aren't as good. I think, you know, that would be a stretch. But I would say it might have damaged some of the positive feeling and unity that was coming out of the club prior to the lockdown. Um, It's certainly, you know will
2: have created an issue for some players between them and the club, if not necessarily between them and the manager. You know, Um, and look, you know, we were critical of David Luiz the other day uh, you know, for the Man City game and for the performance and coming out afterwards is fairly risable to sort of say, well, look, my contract situation is, you know, I'm not sure. using it as an excuse, but, you know, he was basically using it as an excuse. Um, and we were critical of that, as we should be, because a player should be able to compartmentalize that issue with the job that he has to do on the pitch every time he crosses the white line, every time he's wearing an Arsenal shirt. So, you know, mm. to sort of say, well, look, the players haven't done this or that in the game, um they're still professionals. Britain. They're still professionals and they still have a job to do and they they should know what that job is. But I just feel like
1: they're just it, doing twelve percent less of it.
2: <laughs> twelve and a half. Uh yeah, I mean I it, it just maybe um has had an impact and, and that then is a question for, for those higher up to answer. It,
1: it is a good question because, really, if you think about it, we want to see the players giving 110%, but these guys presumably are only giving about 975 and, mm. and that is the difference, right? 12.5 could make all the difference. That's why Brighton won. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's a really interesting point, and I think it. Do you know what, though? I think it probably is more pertinent in terms of how players, players' relationships with the club and maybe the executives are more broadly damaged than explaining why they're not doing so well on the pitch. Mm. But just cu- coming back to the sort of the question of the experienced players, I, I really do think you can kind of separate this squad in two and it's kind of about half a dozen quite exciting young teenage players and then a bunch of guys in their late 20s or early 30s who aren't really the right people to be to be um, shepherding these youngsters into mm-hmm. the Premier League, and the problem is they're the really expensive ones to replace.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and they're hard to get rid of, um, and they're
1: really hard to get rid of. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah it is. That's
1: a uh, and, uh, yeah. And Leno actually is one of the few who's in the right age bracket, like in the middle. You know, Leno is one of the few who's like he's kind of in his prime uh you know and sort of someone you could potentially build around and now we're going to be without him seemingly for quite a long time,
2: yeah, and an interesting character too Leno you know I know that there were times last season where he was not having any of the bullshit from his defenders you know it yeah. wasn't stuff that came out publicly, but there were certainly some some conversations you know if if you can imagine uh, a player uh you know looking to blame the goalkeeper for his mistake, Leno's not having any of that and' is quite forthright about it so well
1: there was a touch of Jens to his reaction wasn't there that's and uh you know it's an easy conflation to say oh another German goalkeeper but there was and I I did like that in him Mm. I mean I think we will miss his personality as well as his ability
2: yeah okay your question I think
1: uh this was an interesting question from Peter Hurst, who said, Arsenal have the most red and yellow cards in the Premier League. Maybe we're not soft anymore, or do we just get punished more than the others?
2: Yeah, I had a similar question from Pete Smith, who's a Pete metallurgist on Twitter, uh, who says, how to change the subconscious narrative that refs have, uh, have of Arsenal being soft, which leads, leads us uh, having to high uh, cards-to-fouls ratio and allows opposition players to commit large numbers of fouls without being booked. I mean, it is very interesting. If you were to go through the Premier League and say, who, who are the dirty teams or who are the really physical teams, you wouldn't put Arsenal in that bracket at all.
1: At all? No. But the only thing I would say is, I forget who did it. Someone at the Athletic did a thing where they got a table of all the, um, what do they call it, like uh, fouls to stop a counter-attack. Yeah. And I think Arsenal are number one or number two this season. So that probably contributes in large part to a lot of the bookings. The sendings off, I think, are just often a consequence of, uh crazy decisions at the back that leave us in a sort of mm. you know impossible situation. But but I the, the question about the narrative around Arsenal is a really fascinating one. And the perception of Arsenal desperately needs refreshing. Well
2: it? yeah look I think I think we can go back to the very first question in this. When you look at the players um when an incident like Leno happens and they're not a surrounding the referee. They're B not surrounding Mope. They're not standing up for each other on the pitch. And I think when you have a player like Besuma, for example, who is careering around making foul after foul after foul, you know, I think at one point after maybe the seventh foul, they said, oh, Bamiyang's just gone over to have a word with the referee. You know, you need to do that after his second foul and his Mm. third foul. I'm not saying that, you know, we we all have that... um, image, remember of Manchester United, veins popping out, chasing Andy Durso around the pitch, you know, mm. give, giving the referee a hard time, but you can talk to referees and you can, you know, you've got to make it clear um, to the referee, you can influence things in that regard. You know, it's it's about leadership on the pitch. It is yeah, about leadership I, I, and we do, we don't really have it from anybody um, in, in what I, we would consider the, the traditional sense.
1: And it wasn't pleasant, you know, a lot of what that United team did. But as far as I remember it, Fergie's United team, they won some stuff. (laughs) you know They won a lot of things. Something worked there, you know. And it's interesting because one thing Steve Round spoke about is, oh, we don't want to see dissent from the players towards each other. You know, if a player makes a bad pass, we don't want to see them throwing their hands up or calling that player out. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But dissent towards others that shows unity as a team is absolutely fine by me. Oh, yeah. And should be fine by them too.
2: 100%. 100%.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't help but think of, you know, you think of 2003, don't you, in Old Trafford and Martin Keown and the way everyone rounded on Ruud van after what happened with Patrick Vieira. But you go through that team and there are probably, you know, probably eight, nine, ten players who you can imagine getting in someone's face after an incident, like what happened to Leno. Yeah, It's harder to think of someone who wouldn't.
2: Yeah, exactly. And look, we have one of those players as our technical director. And I really hope that Edu, who was in the team with with Lauren, who was in the team with Keown and Patrick Vieira and Ray Parler and these big, big characters, Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry, you know, these huge characters on the pitch can look at this Arsenal squad and look at this Arsenal team and see that such a fundamental part of what makes a team effective is missing. Mm-hmm. If he can't see that, and if that's not something that they're looking to address, then I'd be really, really, really worried. But of course, we've no idea what Edu is doing or what his remit is or or whether he's allowed to talk to us uh, about that or not, you know, so, mm. yeah.
1: It, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It's a, it's, it's, I actually don't have anything to say. So I started down that road and I was like, it's, okay. oh, it's just more. of the What else crap. is there?
2: What else is there to say other than this is something that's missing and it's something that needs to be addressed. It's yeah, also something yeah. that to a certain extent can be taught slash coached.
1: Fostered. Yeah.
2: Fostered. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. So. Uh,
1: I hope so. But like I say, I do have concerns that maybe, the, the core personalities that you'd want to help that happen mm. maybe aren't there. Um, and it's not just Edu, by the way. It's Freddie Unberg as well on the Yeah, 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 true, who true. Was around in that period. Um, and everything that we kind of learn about Arteta suggests that that intensity really is there in him as well, but it's not on the pitch. Uh, mm. What, what mm. about this one? Eddie Longbridge, a lot of people have asked this. And we touched on it in part one. But hi, guys, why do you think Arteta's been reluctant to use Martinelli? Or the Martinelli, as Eddie says. We all love the Martinelli and we want to see him play. How can Mikel Arteta not want this too?
2: I don't really have an answer to that, to be honest. Mm. Um, I guess the incompatibility with Aubameyang on the left is the main issue. Like, he wants to keep Aubameyang on the left-hand side. He doesn't want to play him. He um, doesn't want to start him at centre-forward. Uh, and he doesn't want to move in there during the games. And where Martinelli is really effective is from that left-hand side. I mean, I, I think from speaking to people, it's not a question of a lack of faith in his talent or his potential no. because they they do really, really think he's, he's a fantastic prospect. Um, whether there's an issue with an injury or something we're not quite 100% sure about, but, you know, surely if he's on the bench, he can do 15, 20 minutes off it, you know? Um,
1: Yeah, I did hear that um, he hadn't returned to training quite, you know, he was a little bit behind some of the others in terms of his fitness. So maybe that has been Mm. a factor. There's no injury for sure. Mm. Um, It is an odd one to have not played a minute thus far, but I also wonder if there, it, 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 it's it's partly to do with the availability of two other players that Arteta does seem to have taken a real shining to. One is obviously Bukayo Saka, and that we all agree with and concur with, and they, you know, I suppose are competing for a similar position on on left wing. Although Saka's not played there yet, mm. um, and the other is Eddie Nketiah, because uh, I know you heard Mikel's press conference before the Brighton match, and he was absolutely effusive in his praise of Nketiah. Um and from what I understand he really really likes him that's not to say he likes him more than Martinelli but I just think it creates a, a competition for game time basically mm. but I am surprised nonetheless that we've not seen Martinelli so far because someone with his energy his speed his movement you can imagine him affecting a game as a substitute
2: yeah and I think one of the things you know when you when you're a team which struggles to create as we are which has a dearth of creativity from midfield you know we there's no question we've got issues with creating chances for our forward players you know the Pepe goal came out of nowhere we don't have players you can pick the pass. You look at the the game against City and those chances to play Aubameyang through, where you know we talked about those, and just you know it might be an issue of sharpness, it might be an issue of of just lack of vision from some of those players. You need players who can kind of get you goals out of nothing. And that isn't to say that Martinelli's movement or predatory instincts in the box are nothing, but they're qualities that can transform uh, what might look like a a fairly routine cross, something that's easy for the opposition to deal with, into something dangerous. So that's where I really would like to see um, Martinelli come in, even if he's not starting. You know, this is a guy who in 20 minutes could give you a goal threat that's not coming from anywhere else. You know, because yeah. particularly away from home, it's not coming from Lacazette. Um, Aubameyang had some moments. Pepe had his, like, little moment out of the blue. Um, but it's not like we were making chance after chance after chance. So, you know, if you don't have goals coming from the center of your midfield, which we don't, you're really reliant on those um, forward players. And for me, Martinelli is a player who's got enough individual ability um, to score us goals. And I would be surprised not to see him involved in some way uh, against Southampton on on Thursday.
1: Yeah. Can I um, run this tweet by you? It's not a question, but it's a tweet I saw, and I'd be interested in your reaction to it. It's from Squidboy, who's at the Squidboy Like. And he said this thing about... I'll quote him. Remember how football used to be about solid structure at the back and individual genius up front? I'm convinced it's flipped... Now you need excellent individuals in defence and a cohesive unit going forward, but maybe that's just an Arsenal-specific issue. I just thought that was a really interesting observation because it does seem to be like the 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 issue Arsenal face that you know we we are looking for like a Van Dyke, a Saliba-type figure to be the the individual solution. In defence and in attack, we're like, oh yeah, we've got loads of quality players, but we don't seem to have a system that necessarily can make the most sense of them.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you can point to someone like Van Dijk as having that individual brilliance and and, um, transforming the Liverpool defence, right? Mm. Providing that extra quality that they've needed for for a long, long time. Um, But they also brought in a very expensive goalkeeper. Um and they also fullbacks. a couple also, of
1: good, fullbacks came, couple
2: of good well. fullbacks came through their academy and they also have what we don't have which is a, a strong running athletic cohesive unit in midfield and they can they've got interchangeable parts in midfield mm-hmm. you know they can make it work with a number of combinations in there and then they have individual brilliance up front from Salah uh, Mane and Firmino so yeah. I, you know I I I come back to what I was talking about in terms of a midfield. You know, there's no question. Two big areas f- for me this summer uh, are, are the centre of the defence, which we're going to get one addition in and Saliba. You know, already being um, thought of as Arvan Dyke and things like that, which to me feels uh, like I I really hope he is. I really really hope he's as good as people are saying. Uh, but it feels like a lot to pin on a kid coming well, he into this.
1: He cost half what Van Dyke costs, so by any reasoning, I guess he should be half, half as good. good.
2: Yeah, um, but but the centre of our midfield, the centre of our midfield is is is, uh, is something that needs to be addressed. So those Thomas two
1: Party are, better be cheap and he better be good.
2: Party time! Give them Lacazette and I don't know whatever else we could give
1: them. I, give them also. Sorry, just in terms of, like, the structure going forward, I do think it's worth pointing out that prior to the lockdown, we did have a shape uh, that did sort of work. And it Mm. it was maybe predictable in terms of having that front five and Saka being the overlapper from fullback and Ozil playing as a kind of 10. It was maybe predictable and maybe a bit one-dimensional for some people's liking or a bit lopsided, not quite symmetrical but it kind of was working. You know, Saka Mm. was getting in on that overlap and it was pretty effective. And actually, in the two games we've seen since the restart, we've done different things to that and quite different things to each other. We've gone from a team that kept it incredibly simple to one, trying to implement more complex ideas. And I do think that, you know, we are struggling partly as a consequence of that. Does that mean it's the wrong decision? I don't think it necessarily does, because maybe coming to terms with these more complex ideas is sort of the next stage in the team's development. And maybe Arteta has to discover who can do that and who can't. Mm. Maybe it takes a bit more time. But I do think clearly there has been a change of plan and that does partly at least explain the change in results.
2: Yeah, well, OK. Um, let's take this question here from R, who's at Roly-Poly Throw-In. Something I would like to see a lot more of in football. Sure. Just roly polies and then throwing the ball in. Um, if nothing else, that would give us some entertainment as Arsenal fans. Uh, although all our players have break their necks doing it. Um, three positive things you'd like to see from the last few games of this season that are realistic?
1: Um, I'd like to see Pepe find some consistency because we all see in flashes what he can do. And, you know, if he can produce that regularly, then Arsenal have another player who's in the kind of right age bracket to mm. be a mainstay of this team. Um... So that's one. Feel Mm -hmm. free to chip in, Andrew.
2: Um, Let me think about this. What I would like, three positive things that are realistic. Um, Martinelli is one for me. Getting him back in the team and getting some minutes under his belt because, you know, he feels like the future. Um, Aubameyang, much as I like him, does not feel like the future and Lacazette, our fifty million pound will toward is definitely not the future. You know, he God he sort of runs around like an old man these days. Um, he looks, he looks like a shadow of himself, um, mm. which is a bit sad. Um, so Martinelli would be one. Three positive things which are realistic. Another one would be to tie down Saka to a new contract.
1: Yeah. That that's that's a a big big one for me. Mm. And actually, I, I, I don't really care where <laughs> Saka plays because he can kind of do the lot. I mean, and and certainly if you've got a player who can do the lot, maybe the centre of the pitch is the right place to put him because...
2: Yeah, particularly when you're about to... You, you need to rebuild that area of the pitch.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think he really can play that sort of number eight role. I think he's got all the tools. Mm. And I thought he was one of the few Arsenal players to emerge with some credit. Um, I mean, what he will continue to do if he performs like that is increase those wage demands but I absolutely think he's worth it I mean I'm convinced if you're a big club in uh, England or in Europe you must be all over Saka's agent right now Mm. and it terrifies me to think that but of course it's realistic No I
2: agree with you I agree with you and it's you know it is realistic I think it is realistic for Arsenal to be able to tie down an 18 year old prospect who's grown up at the club if it you know we've spoken before about what should happen if it doesn't go through. But let's hope that that is something that does go through because I think it is realistic um, and something we can expect to happen. Um, What else could I think of? Um, I know some people will probably say this is ridiculous, but I I still have a kind of a positive, a more positive outlook on Joe Willock. Than, mm-hmm. than a lot of people so I wonder if the central midfield issue might see him get a few more minutes under his belt I mean I'm just looking to the future really and getting the the younger players as, as many as many positives as we can maybe maybe two would it be realistic to hope that Hector Bellerin rediscovers some of the form uh, that he showed in the past if not the necessarily recent past um,
1: yeah, I mean, they they say it can take you 2 years to come back from a cruciate injury. Um and we're still a little bit short of that. But I do I am worried that he has potentially lost the thing that made him absolutely outstanding, which was that explosiveness, you know. Mm. That was what separated him in a very literal sense from others and
2: I'd be fascinated to see what the the training metrics are. Yeah. In terms of the pace that he used to have and where he is now. Because, you know, it's not unusual for a player to lose some pace as they get older. Mm. You know, as they head towards their 30s, that blistering pace drops off. But it feels like with Hector, it's it, it looks like it's gone uh, way quicker than you would have liked
1: Well, the ACL isn't the only injury, is it? I mean, he had the ankle injury as well. Um, uh, Yeah, so I I would be fascinated to know. It's also not just the capacity to reach that speed, but it's the capacity to repeat it. Yeah. yeah I mean it is a a worry and and I you know look we all love Hector right we all think he's great Mm. and we want to see him at his best so that would that would be a huge lift I'd like to see more games from Kieran Tierney personally I was disappointed he didn't play this game really yeah I mean
2: disappointed uh, because you obviously I think yeah I think it's Reasonable to prefer him to Kalasinach, right? Mm. I think that's fine. But was it realistic for a guy who hasn't played a game in seven months to have played 90 minutes against Manchester City on uh, Wednesday night playing with 10 men? Yeah. I don't think it was realistic.
1: Maybe not, but, but I, I still, as a fan, when I turn up and I saw that team sheet and I saw it was Klaasnacht, not Tierney, I still felt disappointed. Like, sure. I want to see him play. I get and, it from uh, an
2: emotional point of view, but I think from a being realistic, we have to we have to just sort of say, look, that's a lot to ask of a, a guy who's been out of action for, for seven months.
1: Absolutely. But in this period, I do want to see if he can play two games a week but I I, I do think that because I'm concerned that he can't because I'm not sure he has at any point for us yet no
2: he hasn't yet but I mean is that not something that needs to happen over time is that not something he needs to build uh, you know build into his fitness I mean what if we played Tierney and he, he like Tierney pulled a calf or a hamstring in this game people would say you're a fucking idiot uh, idiot why are you playing Tierney? They well, say that's me anyway. That's, yeah, that's not. I, right. I, I didn't mean you. I just meant you know in general that the 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 uh, the decision was a foolish one because you're not managing a player's fitness properly. I mean it's a balancing act. I know, and it's a quality issue because for me I'd much rather see Tierney than Kalasinaj.
1: Yeah, but in I, this situation I, think, I understood it. I, I do understand it in this situation, but I mean maybe I mean to be fair, maybe the season isn't long enough for me to see him play two games a week. I mm. don't know. I would like to see it, and I also just want to see more of him. I've basically, I feel like we're all kind of going off <laughs> his debut to an extent, which was in the cup, uh, and he was brilliant that night, swinging crosses in from the left, and we all thought, "Here we go." And we just haven't seen him with any kind of consistency. Mm. And I really hope we do because I, I think there's a, I actually think there's a really, really good player there, proper modern fullback who can sort of do it all. And actually, in terms of character uh and in terms of being competitive and showing a bit of fight anyone who saw Tierney play in Celtic knows that psychologically he is tough he is tough like he is someone who he's mm. not the biggest bloke but he'll he'll go into any challenge absolutely fearless and I think that we could really do with someone like that I thought Mm. Arteta actually managed Kolasinac quite smartly in this game by basically massively reducing the space that he covered you know the problem with Kolasinac is when he bombs forward he can't Get back. He can't go in the yeah. direction. So he, he basically said sit in as a third centre half. And it a class like, he wasn't brilliant, but he got away with playing in a back four because he wasn't trying to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 Tierney lets you do so much more. Yeah. And in terms of the shape and getting that overlap and someone replicating a bit what Saka did, I do think he has, in theory, the athleticism mm. to do that.
2: Okay, uh, have you got one more or
1: um, I, I do actually yep. it's a bit sombre but I think it's worth asking so it was from Paul Ws at Paulie T33 on Twitter and Paul says I hate to ask this but what if Arteta isn't as good as we all hope and want we're pinning an awful lot on an unproven manager he looks the part He talks the part, Mm. but has a lot to do. I'm not for one minute suggesting we sack him, but is it a cause of worry?
2: Um, It would be ridiculous for there not to be worries about hiring a manager who's never managed before Mm. and to manage a club which is going through a period of... What would you say this period is? I mean, how would you describe uh, it? I mean, look, we all knew that the post-Wenger years were going to be somewhat turbulent, that there was going to be, you know, an impact. But, uh, you know, I think we're going through a decline, right? So, yeah, I
1: wanted to call it um, transition, but I think transition, decline is more decline,
2: accurate. Clearly decline is, is obvious when you look at our footballing performance over the last number of years. Um it would be wrong for there not to be worries about it. What if he's not as good as we all hope he is? Well, we won't know this season, uh, this season uh, and maybe we'll know next season and then we can make a decision. But if he turns out not to be good enough the answer is sack him and bring in somebody else because that's what happens at football clubs. But I, I think and I don't want to sort of hammer home this point again because we've had this discussion a few times. I think it's incumbent on us to look at the situation at Arsenal uh, as a whole and not just think that the issue is with the manager, the guy who's picking the team. I think there are, I think there are issues um, with the ownership. I think there are issues with the executive um, structure. Maybe not so much the structure, but the executive personnel. I think there are significant things to worry about at that level too. And if Arteta turns out to not be good enough and we sack him and we bring in another manager, my faith in the people making that decision and making that appointment will be pretty much rock bottom because they were the ones that brought in Unai Emery. They're they're the ones that... um, Uh, stuck with Emery they're the ones that then would have appointed another manager who doesn't make it and of course I I just want to be clear I really like Mikel Arteta I really have a lot of hope and faith that he can do the things that he says he wants to do Um, so I'm not sort of countenancing any uh, campaign or anything like that but you know that's the reality if he turns out not to be good enough he gets the sack as with managers everywhere in football so yeah, But but I, I, don't be blind to other things that are going on at the football club. That's all I'll say.
1: No, that's fair. I, I think on Arteta, because he came from Man City and because he's, I don't know, Spanish and because he worked with Guardiola, I think there was a slight presumption that technically he was sort of going to be flawless that he was this guy who understood football like sort of Neo in the Matrix and therefore Arsenal would suddenly play beautiful stuff and actually technically we know about his beliefs we know about the sort of football he wants to play but we don't know masses about his technical capacity as a coach, right? I think we assume it's good, but we don't know that. And there will be holes, there will be flaws. Like anyone who's new in any job, something like the substitutions, he will fall short in areas, he will get things wrong. What I think we do know about him, partly because he did this job for Pep as his assistant culturally and in terms of kind of, you know, helping him interact with players. From everything he's from everything we know about his time at Arsenal, Arsenal are in desperate need of a sort of cultural revolution at London Colney. And I think that Arteta has the right personality to lead that. Mm. And it it may be long and it may be bloody and there may be big casualties, but I think that Arteta has the, the personality to finish the job that Emery actually tried to do. Emery failed to implement a cultural revolution at Arsenal and shift out some of the big personalities he didn't want around and change the way the club was perceived and clay change the way, you know, the, the intensity of the players. He did fail. But I think he failed because of certain personal qualities that he lacked. And I think Arteta has those qualities. And although his name, is his title is head coach, I actually think he can manage this group. Maybe he needs more support on the coaching side. From a technical perspective, it's Albert Stevenberg who's principally advising him. Maybe he does need a more experienced head alongside him, someone who's been a manager before. But I genuinely think when we talk about these senior players, we talk about them not being the right types of personalities and we need someone to have the balls, basically, to move them on and also identify the right people mm. to support this young and guide this young cohort of players, I think Arteta does have that capacity. It's,
2: it's uh, very much shades of George Graham era when he took over and he came in, he got rid of all the, you know, the Charlie Nicholas, the Champagne Charlie yeah. players and had a, you know, a very promising group of young players coming through. So, you know, there's, look, I'm not mm. saying history can repeat itself or anything like it, but it's just interesting that this is, is sort of, um, is quite similar in terms of the trajectory and in terms of what needs to be done to get the, the club and to get the team back on track, you know. Yeah.
1: I- Sorry, just to say, uh, uh, to give another shout out to Tim Stillman, he tweeted about the job that Pochettino did at Spurs in terms of, you know, transforming to an extent the perception of that team, you know, that they were incredibly soft and flaky and then they became this kind of hard running, hard tackling, Mm. very physical side. Pochettino really did implement that shift and I think Arteta can too. And let's be clear, sooner or later, it has to happen. Yeah. It has to happen. And it and it, it will be painful. And if we, if we were to, no one's suggesting this, but if we were to jettison Arteta now, we'd be looking for another manager who could do that same job. Or who wants to has do it, yeah. To, yeah. 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 Someone has to rip this up, basically. Yeah. A- and I think my position is basically, I think it might as well be Arteta, because I believe he can carry it through sure. better than the guy we had before.
2: Sure. Look, he, he, you know, he's got a great grounding as a player. He understands the club as well. He was captain of the football club. He, he wants the football club to be what it was. Um, uh, he, he understands what Arsenal should be, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, to absolutely. go at the job in that, in, with that kind of mind mindset, um, I, I think we can. I think we can all get behind that. Even if people have worries about his um, inexperience or his ability to to manage games or his in-game management, et cetera, et cetera. those are things he can learn. But I think just from the from the point of view of what he wants Arsenal to be and how he wants it to to get there, I feel like that's something most Arsenal fans should be able to get behind. The one thing I would say, and I've said, you know, we've said this before, is that it is going to require. Patience from us, which Mm. isn't always easy, of course, um, because football is such a short-term business and and, and everything else, but also significant support
0: from the people above
2: him who have to um, enable some of the, the, the work that he wants to do. They have to make things happen in terms of mm-hmm. getting players to sign new contracts, selling players, buying players, recruitment, you know, is he going to get that support? Are some of Arteta's ideas incompatible with some of the uh the way that that, that some of the people at uh, executive level want to operate? There's mm-hmm. a very interesting sidebar to all that as well. So
1: Yeah, it will be interesting. And also, it will be quite traumatic. I mean, we will lose more games this season, at least. You know, Mm. we will lose more games. And I I, I don't mean by that it's okay to lose games. You know, Arsenal should beat Brighton, even while they're undergoing this decline, even while we're in this transition. But it is also inevitable that there will be pain. Yeah.
2: Well, just to go back before we finish, just to go back to that question about positive things that we want to see from from the between now and the end of the season that are realistic. Mm. Let's see some personality. Mm. Let's see some personality that, that 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 tallies with what our idea of Arsenal is. And it might sound very ephemeral and everything else, but I think everyone knows what I'm talking about, you know, when it comes to that kind of a thing, whether that's from the manager, whether it's, you know, in terms of our performances, whether it's individuals, whatever it might be, whatever happens between now and the end of this season, which I think we... You know, we're looking at being pretty much a write-off. But let's see some personalities, some green shoots. I, You know, I think what we saw from Arteta and the team pre-lockdown, I'm not saying it was massively improved, but I felt very much like there were green shoots there for us to to sort of water. We've taken a little bit of a step backwards in the last couple of games, and it's easy to feel disheartened and everything else. But I think we would be wrong to forget about those things. So let's see a bit of that between now and the end of the season. Whatever happens in terms of results, you can even lose games and take positives from them. You know, you can see Mm -hmm. things that might be positive from the way we play or the way that we try to play or our intentions within the game. You know, let's see some of those things. Uh, And then we can build on those in the summer, hopefully provided that, you know, the people um, whose job it is to make uh, the changes can do it efficiently and, and well, so...
1: Yeah. But, I mean, I I think there is huge pressure and huge onus on them to do it, but it is in much more difficult circumstances now than Mm. 12 months ago. And Mm. if you can query the job they did 12 months ago, it's going to be harder now so yeah I mean massive responsibility on, on the club in that respect
2: alright well look we're going to leave it there because this has been a bit of a marathon uh, thank you as always for being here thanks for uh, for for listening and subscribing and all of that kind of stuff we are going to have another ArsCast Extra on Friday morning because we're playing Thursday night against Southampton uh, let's hope we can get a win under our belts third time lucky in the uh, post Covid-19 world uh, again uh, we'll catch you on the next one until then bye bye